Hi there, I'm Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. And on this episode, I'm really happy to bring you this conversation with Dr. Jessica Hernandez. A bit about Dr. Hernandez. She's a transnational indigenous scholar, a scientist, and a community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. She has an interdisciplinary academic background ranging ranging from uh, marine science to forestry. Dr. Hernandez is the author of a new book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, and that is out here in January. Look for it. Um, by the time this episode comes out, I believe it will already be out, so go have a, have a look for it. This book explores problems with our current kind of Western approach to conservationism, and it offers indigenous models informed by case studies, personal stories, family histories, and specifically the book centers on voices of Latin American women and land protectors. We talked about some things in the podcast, a little bit of a content warning. We briefly do talk about war and genocide, not in great detail, but there are some stories that are in the podcast and also in the book. We also talked about uh, a number of different things, as we always do. We talked about the current use of the hero model in science, which is something I've been thinking about lately and reading other people's thoughts about and kind of processing that and how that hero model might need to change. You know, the model where we just prop up a small number of people into very high kind of positions. But we, we get into all that. We talk about indigenous science versus the kind of siloed and interdisciplinarity in Western science, whereas indigenous science, uh, as Dr. Hernandez articulates, already kind of comes in this integrated package. So it's, uh, it's uh, another way to think about things. We talk about the idea of concentric ecology, changing the nature of our relationship, changing that human nature relationship. Jessica, also we, we go into her role as a climate justice policy strategist with the International Mayan League. She does a lot of stuff. We talked about her father's childhood experiences in the Central American Civil War, which is now considered a genocide by the United Nations. We talk about Jessica's doctoral work, restoring an area of Discovery Park in Seattle, Washington. This was really cool. This used to be a military base, gifted back to the city of Seattle. Indigenous communities campaigned and released back 20 acres of this land, and they were able to start the Daybreak uh, Start Indigenous Center uh, there in that location. And Jessica had a, a role in that. Yeah, we also talk about the process of writing a book and how the process of writing a book for a popular audience is pretty different than writing for uh, for academic papers. So yeah, okay, let's, again, that book is Fresh Banana Leaves. Go have a look for it. It uh, Depending on when this comes out exactly, it might be out already. So uh, yeah, go look that up. Let's go ahead. Let's do it. Let's get into this conversation with Dr. Jessica Hernandez. Here we go. <music> So first off, I wanted to say thank you for getting up early because you're in Seattle, right? Yeah, I'm in Seattle and it's like 7 a.m. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for getting up so early and for being ready. How are things in Seattle right now? What's what's going on? Yeah, so I think we're back to Seattle Seattle weather, um, which is rainy, gray, cold. Um, I miss the, the summer, but when we had the summer, everyone was complaining that it was too hot. But now that mm. it's back to Seattle weather, we're like, oh, we probably... 
should have embraced that heat more. <sighs> yeah, I saw there was one of those atmospheric rivers uh, not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I forget who it was on Twitter, but someone on Twitter put this amazing satellite image showing the like precipitable you know, water content in the atmospheric column. And it just absolutely showed this very clear river stretching all the way across the Pacific uh, from the tropics, pretty much pointing at Seattle <laughs> directly. <laughs> Angry finger. <laughs> right there. <laughs> just delivering lots and lots of rain. Yeah, I know there's been tons of... Um, Tons of rain and some some flooding in Canada too, right? I think there's been yeah, some, and it was um yeah. actually north of Washington, and then I guess in the summer we also had heat waves, so it was like extremely hot. Um, we're just experiencing a lot of extreme weather recently. Yeah, it makes me think of how uh, Catherine Hayhoe talks about climate change as loading the dice of extreme weather, right? And like it just mm-hmm. it makes some some element of that uh, more more probable or more likely, and yeah, so. I, I kind of um, just to, to reflect on that a little bit. It's that it's interesting that people are noticing that now, even just kind of casually observing what their weather is like. You know, you we obviously have the statistics and the data to show that, but when you talk to people, they especially people who've lived in an area for a long time, they they know right. They have this intuitive sense of like I don't know, something's happening, something's changing. Um, you know, you talk to people who have kind of watched snow cap disappear from their mountains and are kind of aware of things like that. And actually that seems like if that's not too forced, that seems like kind of a good way to talk about, to, to segue into some of the themes you talked about in your book of like, you know, the, the kind of wealth of indigenous knowledge and the importance of that indigenous knowledge. And, you know, part of, part of, there's many reasons why that's valuable, but part of why that's valuable is it has this long history. You know, it's a, it's a long record. It's uh, much longer than the instrumental records that we have. And so that, that's one of the many, you know, things that can make that important. I really, I really, uh, I, I liked your book and there's the last that we could potentially talk about. Is that a good starting place though? Kind of talking about, you know, the, we do have our kind of modern instrumental record, but like how does, indigenous knowledge play into that how does indigenous knowledge uh, you know help inform kind of what we know about the natural world mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so i guess one of the things about like what you were mentioning is that that you know for indigenous communities we have been making observations since time immemorial for generations about how our environments have been changing and that just not just because of colonialism but also because of the climate change impacts many of our ecosystems and natural resources are also experiencing. I know that for the Pacific Northwest, one of the things that we're also observing is that um, many flowers or plants are blossoming at different seasons and they're not, you know, they're their normal seasons. And I think that's a result of climate change. We also are seeing, like you were mentioning, those rivers, atmospheric rivers, and also those heat waves that are Kind of also impacting the urban settings in the state of Washington. And I think that because we're seeing those um, climate change impacts in cities, maybe there's more reason or why more people are actually paying more attention to climate change as we speak today. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of getting to, to people where they are, kind of making those those local impacts. So I'm, I'm really interested in kind of what you're working on right now. What are your projects what's um what are what are the, some of the things you're digging into um you know i noticed you know you mentioned a couple of them here there's this uh, energy and equity 
uh, organization. That's one of the things we could talk about. We could talk about the, um, obviously, you know what you're involved with, the Mayan, Mayan League and the book and your science research, any of that. What's, what's uh, where I'll let you steer in terms of which one of those sounds really like you want to talk about it, like you want to share with us? Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow. And I don't know, like if in England, there are different um, ranks, but basically I completed my PhD and I'm doing additional research as a postdoctoral research fellow. And the project that I'm working on is energy inequity. So we're looking at the intersection that equity plays in energy, especially from a physics lens. So in physics, energy is defined as something abstract that cannot be actually perceived. But when it comes to energy, we know that energy systems are actually leading to injustices, especially climate injustices that are impacting communities of color, especially in particular indigenous communities. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at energy from an environmental physics lens and kind of integrating the indigenous lens and the energy justice movements that they have been leading to transition into renewable energy, especially for the state of Washington. Right. Yeah. There's this this concept, like you said, this abstract concept of energy, and it's this unifying concept in physics. But it has a the way it plays out and the way it kind of flows through a system. If we include you know the people in the system can lead to injustices. It can lead to, you know, unequal kind of um, distributions of that. And um, it's, it's really, that must be fascinating because it sounds like such an interesting way to, you know, connect that kind of traditional physics education with like, hold on, let's remember that there are people on the other end of this. <laughs> that there are people in communities and societies on the other end of, of how this stuff flows. So can you give, give us an example of like, is, is there... What would come out of that? Like what sort of, if you're making that kind of effort, what's an example of the sort of thing that one might see that has been informed by that way of thinking? Yes, I think that um, in physics, right, it's like a field that's very particular in how it defines um, terms and especially concepts. So I think that one of the examples that we can see is even how many of destructive energy resources or ways that we extract energy from our land has actually exploited indigenous land. So we can see mm -hmm. that a current example is the North, North Dakota Access Pipeline and how despite, you know, indigenous communities kind of leading a peaceful resistance movement, there were they were facing violence, right? Especially from the governmental officials when it comes to like policing and how to dictate how they should actually be leading these movements. And I think that's a, a great example that, you know, it's current. So a lot of people are aware of that. But in the state of Washington, it's still like the same histories or stories being repeated where extractive energy products or resources, or, you know, in this case, we have a lot of ports. They're trying to import and export those extractive energy resources, especially in particular fossil fuels that are harming indigenous lands. And so does that include um, kind of equity at the point of use? So we're talking things like energy poverty and people's access to energy within communities as well, rather than just the kind of at the extraction end, if you like. Yeah. So it also includes like poverty. Right. And I think uh, another example that we can see is like the pandemic. Right. Who had access to the Internet, who had access to technology to transition into remote learning that a lot of schools and educational systems went through. So I think it's like, um, yeah, there's different pillars, but equity from that lens of like poverty, democracy, right? Who has a right to say what kind of energy they want to depend on? Also, 
yeah, so it's like the different pillars that make up energy justice in this sense. So I think that one of the biggest takeaways is that, you know, a lot of physicists are don't want to unlearned or relearned the ways that they have been taught. So it's like, how do you advocate for that equity piece in a field that, you know, you still have like those old school um, physicists who do not want to unlearn or relearn because, you know, that's how they've been taught all their lives. So that that's the only right way they know or think that that's the only right way that, that there is to perceive certain concepts and topics. Right. Yeah. There's almost this uh, resistance to engaging with anything social sometimes when it comes to, like you said, doing old school physics, there's a, a feeling of like, no, no, just give me my equations and my, <laughs> you know, my laboratory equipment and don't talk to me about actual human beings and, uh, and society. And that's, um, that's something you talk about in the, in the book as, as well as this kind of artificial, sometimes conceptually useful, but ultimately artificial separation between like systems, like breaking the world up into separate systems that don't interact with each other. And like, yeah, that can be a good abstraction sometimes, but ultimately it sounds like part of the goal is like, well, let's, let's get back to reality as it is. And let's get back to the full complexity of that and how, you know, we're, we're all connected into one big thing. Everything affects everything else. That sort of picture. Is that sort of the, the goal of that sort of to, to get to a more integrated picture. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the um, foundations of indigenous science, right? Where it's more holistic, where everything is interconnected. Because I know that for us scientists, when we're trained, right, we're trained to separate ourselves from the research that we're conducting. And for indigenous science, it's kind of hard to separate yourself because any research that you're conducting is kind of related to the environment. Everything is interconnected. And as you were um, summarizing, right, we tend to separate things into systems or boxes. And that tends to, while we try to bridge those systems together, it's kind of hard sometimes to do that because, you know, we, we stay in those boxes and we stay in those systems. And then when we're questioned or critiqued to kind of be more holistic, it's kind of like something hard for many of us to do as well, especially trained in the Western sciences and how they're conducted in terms of, you know, in the name of research and scientific discovery. Yeah, I thought that was interesting um, in your book as well. You talk about this kind of interdisciplinarity, um, which is almost like a constructed word that, I mean, when you think about Indigenous science, you don't need interdisciplinarity because it's inherent within it. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a bridging tool that we use in the more Western uh, scientific practice to, to join the dots, if you like. But we should probably just take a banana leaf out of uh, Indigenous science book and, and think about it more holistically anyway. Yeah, the existence of the term is almost an admission of like, oops, we forgot to connect all these things. <laughs> forgot to talk to each other. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, where do you think some of that resistance comes from, some of that inertia? And Jessica, I'm not necessarily putting that all on you to suddenly, you know, answer that. I just thought maybe the three of us could talk about, you know, wh where does that resistance come from? You know, why are we still so stuck in some of those old uh, kind of ways of thinking? And, um, you know, wh what is it that keeps us kind of clinging to those, you think? So I think one of the things that come to mind is like the scientific history that we actually 
honor. And that tends to be like, you know, how we were taught to think. So when we think about like the founders of certain fields, they all thought in, in systems, right, in boxes. So when we come and continue to teach and uphold their philosophies, it's kind of hard to undo history, especially history that's been honored for so many generations and years. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I um, So at a, at a talk I had the opportunity to give recently, one of the things I highlighted was um, I just found, I read this article about the end of the the hero model because the the article was making the point that over the past, you know, several centuries, we have sort of constructed this model where we just prop a very small number of scientists up on a bit of a pedestal. They tend to get a lot of the resources, a lot of the both human resources and uh, grant money and time on telescopes, for example, and things like that. And that as a result, a lot of the the energy of that scientific process has been wasted in kind of interdisciplinary squabbles. To get back to that word again, the kind of, you know, uh, competition between different fields and competition between different resource researchers. And the the author was trying to make the point that, yeah, we know we need a more rapid solution. We need a, a more rapid system that can give us solutions quickly that can value team-based and community-based approaches which oh yeah jessica that was one of the really interesting questions you posed in in the book where you were talking about not not to take us i want i want to get to that in just a second let me finish my thought and I'll, i'll come back to that but yeah the away from a kind of hero model and towards this kind of let's value teams of scientists communities let's try to value uh instead of it's not that there's no role for individual contributions or for honoring individual contributions, but you know, maybe it's more important to ask, are we healthy as a group, like as a whole, are we a healthy kind of cohesive unit? Uh, are we solving important problems or where is the direction of our, our work headed? And it was meant to be very mildly provocative because I think we do, a lot of us have benefited from this hero model. And there were lots of people in the room who had benefited from that hero model. Uh, most people seem to know where I was coming from, but if you, uh, well, I say a few, but really I only, I'm only aware of one person who got their feathers ruffled a bit. I think it was a person who, um, you know, is a very good scientist. Like they have done really nice work and they uh, do try to help the people that they're mentoring. So it's, it really wasn't meant to be a critique of them, but they admittedly felt really defensive. They felt like I was attacking them by saying, no, no, let's move away from this hero model. And I guess this has all been a very long-winded way to say that I guess part of that inertia and resistance comes from just what you're talking about too, of like, we've honored the past a certain way. And uh, then some individuals find themselves like, oh, they're they're benefiting from this hero model. They're benefiting from the traditional way. And when you're locked into a system that is like paying your bills and you know helping your kids, that becomes very difficult to step outside of that and to start wondering if we should take it apart. That, that can be a scary exercise. Um, I feel like I'm talking too much, but I wanted to, let's get, let, let me get back to you by asking you this or bringing this point up of, um, I thought that idea of, um, you talked about a scientist coming into an indigenous context and writing a paper with an indigenous author, for example, co-author. And I liked your question of like, well, wait, why didn't the community write this paper? Which I thought was great. Like, oh, that's really interesting. I wondered if you had some thoughts about like, 
what would an, an indigenous community paper kind of look like? Like how would, how would we need to rethink our kind of ideas of publishing and, you know, um, to, 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 um, open up the landscape to more contributions like that. Yeah. So I think that an indigenous paper might be like, per, per, like foreseen as like, or portrayed as being all over the place. And I think that that has to do with like the fact that we tend to separate, um, certain knowledges into systems. And when we have this holistic, kind of lens or this holistic cycle, then, you know, if we're trained in the Western sciences or in the Western education, we're like, oh, okay, this is like touching on many different topics and themes um, throughout the paper. But I think a paper kind of will follow more of that community protocol. And I think that oftentimes the scientists, when we do go do research in indigenous communities, we leave with the data that we needed and we never come back or we never kind of present that paper or that paper that we're publishing to the communities themselves. And oftentimes, you know, you can find papers about your own community that none of your community members actually know that existed. So for instance, in my maternal Indigenous community of the Sapotec Nation, we have a lot of papers written about our matriarchy or matri matriarchal systems because we still honor those, right? We're the woman and our two-spirited relatives that we consider mooches have that authority over, you know, cisgender men. And I think that as a result, you know, there's so many papers written about that, but like none of them my community actually knew about or um, it's limited the ones that they actually know about. And I think that that shows that separation that we tend to portray or see Indigenous communities as research subjects rather than research experts. And I think that that's what I was hinting at. Also, we see them as areas of expertise rather than the experts themselves. And I think that, you know, as you were mentioning that hero model, when you talk to somebody who might be benefiting from the way that those systems are are led or being kind of um, administered in the Western sciences, they take it personal, right? And that's when you have them be more defensive, when in reality, you were not speaking about them specifically, but it's because, you know, they are doing that reflection and then that deflection, right? Because they haven't done that reflective work themselves outside of those conversations. So they take defense on the person bringing them up. Yeah, yeah. Ella, were you saying something? It looked like you were... I wasn't, but no, it's super interesting. The idea of having, uh, well, not interesting, it's just quite archaic, the idea of having this sort of subject-object thing going on where in reality what I think would be so much more ideal both for Indigenous communities and the scientific community is that collaboration because ultimately there's so much knowledge there that can be shared and it's such a shame that those... Uh, those two different and yet compatible types of knowledge are kind of separated into those bit silos. So you have indigenous knowledge over here and you have scientific knowledge over there, but really they're describing the world in a, just in a different way, but there's so much kind of exchange to be happened. So yeah. Is there, have you got any kind of examples or cool stories about good collaborative practices where you've seen scientists working well with indigenous communities rather than that hey we've written loads of papers about you we didn't tell you about it 
<laughs> yeah, so I get that question asked a lot and I'm always trying to think of good examples. I think that a lot of the examples that I can think of are like good starting points, but like in terms of like how successful or how collaborative they have been with indigenous communities is kind of, you know, questionable, questionable sometimes. And I think that with researchers, we are also seeing how community-based participatory research is kind of being misused where, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to think of this like research project, but I'm going to bring in the indigenous communities after I have developed the research project or the timeline. And then I'm going to call it community-based participatory research. And I think that it's also as Danny was kind of mentioning or hinting towards, it's like, how do we rethink those ways that we have been taught and also, you know, do that reflection that it's not in a personal attack on any individual, but like and a critique on the overall system that have been, you know, upheld for so many years that sometimes it's, and I guess we tend to fight when we're being, um, asked to unlearn or relearn the certain ways that we have been taught all of our lives. But to give an example, I think that in the state of Washington, because tribes have tribal sovereignty and they also have um, the bold decision, which basically granted them the treaty rights that they signed, their ancestors signed, where they are um, allowed to have 50% of all fishing, especially salmon. I see that, you know, while scientists might be trying to do that research with salmon is kind of, you know, they're called out when they ignore that tribal sovereignty. And I think that, you know, sometimes we need those, that sovereignty written down or those policies and laws so that we can use it to hold, especially government officials or the government accountable for um, basically, you know, practicing and making sure that they uplift those um, treaty rights as well. And what what do you think would be kind of, the gold standard of collaborative research maybe kind of originated from the indigenous community or yeah can you can you give a paint as a nice picture of what it would look like if it was done really well yeah so like I can give an example of like when I completed my dissertation right instead of me saying oh I'm going to come up with this research project I started um, asking the urban indigenous community especially the one that will frequent this location called Daybreak Star Indian Cultural Center where you're allowed to you know um, practice ceremony hold events for the urban indigenous communities that have been displaced more internally right from reservations into cities and then after asking them, you know, we kind of cre- co-created the project, which was to restore the land there, the 20 acres of land that they were, you know, they have been leasing from the urban parks. And I think that, you know, that was a good way to say that, you know, as a scientist, we don't have to come up with all the research ourselves. We can ask the community what do they need, especially for those of us, you know, in the Western sciences that we have, we are given the tools and the training. And also we have those resources that can be used to kind of support the community. And that would be like a good idea to follow, right? Where we are not like just, you know, and I think it goes back to that hero model, right? Where we're like, oh, we're like the ones developing this groundbreaking research, you know, questions. But in reality, you know, we sometimes we can work with the community and that doesn't take away, you know, the grant level of, you know, scientists that we are. But I guess it's also like critiquing those systems that are in place. So there's going to be a lot of like people being defensive or taking it personal as well. It sounds so simple. Just ask the people who <laughs> are affected, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's so difficult, like you say, to unlearn those years and years of unconscious or conscious bias and 
those structures that are kind of pushed on us from very early stages in our educational careers. Yeah. And imagining trying to do something like that, it, it implies you would need to be able to go into a community and to be a presence that could come in and be trusted enough to to for the community to even want to collaborate with you in the first place. And that is a skill set that not everyone has, <laughs> potentially. Um, so it's interesting to think about how, you know, different approaches, different skill sets might end up being valued in this more kind of communal, uh, community-based kind of vision of what future scientific research could look like. Show up, get to know people, get to know a community, <laughs> try to listen. That's the first thing. Instead of coming in, you know, with your ideas already kind of concrete in your head about how you're going to do everything and be receptive and be open to, you know, what people are, are telling you. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I was, uh, I wanted to be vulnerable for a second and talk about, because we're, we're talking about the process of unlearning things, right? And the process of like people feeling defensive and then people feeling like, they don't want to change and that they, they don't want to look at, um, you know, difficult past and kind of traumatic things that have happened in the past. And just to be vulnerable, I was going to open up and say that one of the parts of, of your book where I felt a little bit of like, oh gosh, um, was reading about like, uh, I'm just going to read it, like uh, where you talk about how national parks, frameworks, and paradigms are grounded in beliefs that are rooted in settler colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism. And these are the paradigms and frameworks that were uplifted and instilled in the U.S. during this time period. And the settlers continue urbanizing and creating settlements throughout the United States. And I think part of why I felt that reaction in me was like, I've, I, uh, especially when I was living in Colorado, the national parks mm -hmm. were like important to me emotionally and like a restorative and, and healing. So it's, it's difficult to be appropriate. It's, you know, it's fine. I, I don't mind it. It's, appropriate but difficult to be confronted with like that um, something that has been such a nice thing for me it has uh, roots in some uh, pretty violent and dark uh, uh, behavior and I guess you know when somebody's confronted with something like that they they have a choice right they can either keep listening and stay open or they can get all defensive and walled up and try to like put push back so I think it's uh it's on it's on everyone. It's on especially the people who have who have benefited from this, uh, you know, violent past to be reflective and to be be honest about that. Don't don't try to invalidate that. Don't try to you know wish it away or pretend that it didn't happen because it, it did happen, and we need to own up own up to it. And uh, I feel like it's the first step. Just don't be defensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just to like um, connect that, right? Recently, the U.S. Senate actually um, approved the nomination of Chuck Sams, who to be the mm -hmm. director of the National Park Services. And I think yeah. that part of like the reasons why we need to kind of, in a way, address that you know harmful and violent history is that it will allow us to kind of dismantle it or do or kind of find solutions to undo the harm that was enacted on the communities. And I think that you know, thank you for sharing that because right, it's kind of hard to separate something that you grew up with and you kind of upheld to a different value, especially you know as a child, something that you know 
played a role in your childhood. And I think that, you know, when national parks are addressing that history, then that's when they can come up with solutions to kind of undo the injustice that they had been, you know, that they were founded on. And I think that oftentimes, even the whole movement of land back, right, people think that when we when we say land back, we just want every, you know, our land to be given back to us and we're going to get rid of everybody who's like not indigenous in this continent. But in reality, it's just like undoing that history where land is seen as a property and land is being Mm. sold to these like large international corporations that are kind of introducing those extractive energy sources, are introducing like plantations, right, that are, you know, the agriculture that's like kind of ruining our lands, our soils. Mm -hmm. And I think with Land Back is just like giving that autonomy and that stewardship to the indigenous peoples who had been caretaking of that land for generations. And I think that, you know, with national parks, them being able to confront that history is kind of allowing them to think of ways that they can undo that injustice that's been portrayed against indigenous communities. Do you see that there's become more kind of focus on the value of indigenous stewardship of of land? I mean, I've noticed that there's more, at least in the media, about indigenous communities being the best stewards of land. And for example, around the the whole coverage of the recent climate summit in Glasgow, there was a lot more um, coverage of the indigenous voices that were there and particularly the fact that they weren't really being invited in to actually contribute. So I'm wondering if, I mean, obviously that's a very baby step towards um, fully integrating those knowledges into climate policy but I'm wondering if you think that there's been some progress yeah I think there's been some progress and I think it has to do back to like what the generations before us have done and oftentimes like we tend to forget to give credit to the previous generations like the generations of our great-grandparents of our grandparents our elders and they have done a lot to kind of break those layers, right? And I think that when in the book, I also talk about how decolonizing is kind of peeling onions, right? Because there's so many layers that we have to peel in order for us to get to that decolonizing way of life, right? Which will be until we get to the core of the onion. And I think that because our previous generations, our elders, were thinking in that seven generations lens, right? Where they were not just thinking for themselves, but they were thinking for their future. And, you know, they kind of peeled some of those layers from that onion that continues to dismiss indigenous knowledge or indigenous voices and, you know, to or invite us to those tables. And as you were mentioning, Ella, um, we're not necessarily invited, but we our presence is a little bit more highlighted than it was in, you know, my grandma's generation or great grandparents generation. But, you know, it's like peeling those onions to the point that hopefully we mm-hmm. do get invited to not just at the table, but we're leading that table. Right. Because we have to move away from just taking up a seat to actually getting that autonomy to lead that table where we're actually center as opposed to, you know, tokenized or just kind of, you know, just given a seat so that, you know, our communities don't complain, right, in that sense. Yeah. You you also speak about this idea of being a good ancestor, which I thought was super interesting. I've heard heard it spoken about before, but maybe I was, maybe you could talk a bit about what that means. Yeah, so a good ancestor is just keeping in mind that, you know, our lives are not eternal, that we are walking this earth 
and one day, you know, we're going to lose our lives or, you know, because that's the cycle of life, right? We start with birth and it ends in death. And I think being a good ancestor allows, you know, and if we start thinking about that, like, oh, once we're gone, we're going to be somebody's ancestor, right? Especially in our lineage, in our communities. How do we take decisions to kind of, help the future generations that are yet to come, right? Because like we want to be those good ancestors that didn't let climate change kind of get worse or didn't lead to more extinctions of animals. We want to be those ancestors that, you know, took action to advocate for the inclusion of communities that have been left out of the climate change discourse where we are addressing solutions rather than just having conversations, right? And I think that that's one of the critiques the United Nations and the COP conference always get is that every year global leaders meet, but every year CO2 emissions, greenhouse emissions increase, so our surface temperatures mm-hmm. are increasing. So mm-hmm. how do we actually take action to not just think about ourselves and most of the time, you know, People tend to think about their pockets, right? Especially if they're in the energy industry or global political leaders. How do we think for the future generations that allow us to move from that individual lens that we have been taught to, you know, just be um, thinking, being individuals, like thinking in the individualistic lens? How do we move to think about the future? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of along those lines, you write about indigenous stewardship. And I'm just going to read a little bit about indigenous knowledge has been able to survive colonization because they've been passed down orally. And while some of these teachings were in relation to living conditions in the past, indigenous knowledge can adapt to new climates, spaces, and environment. And it's no surprise that due to their resiliency and adaptive capacity, indigenous people's teachings can serve as solutions to the environmental degradation and crisis we are currently facing in a changing climate. And I think it gets down to just exactly what you were saying part of it is simply a longer lens of like, let's just, let's think about more than just us right this minute. Let's think seven generations ahead and think more in the mindset of being good, good ancestors. It affects us directly as well. I mean, even if one did want to be slightly more selfish, climate change happens, it's happening right now. (laughs) And you know, what we do is going to determine what things are going to be like when the three of us are are old people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you can view it that way, but it's also very good to view it in that in that longer lens as well. I liked you brought up this term, um, concentric ecology. Could we talk a little bit about that? About the um, changing the human nature relationship, and it's uh, it's a. I just uh, I was going to try to read a, a quick bit of it there, but I lost a little bit that I was going to read, which is why I'm now stumbling over my words. So it tries to explain the human relationship that indigenous peoples have with the environments through the notion that we are not separate from nature, but rather an integral component. We, we touched on that a little bit, but is there anything along those lines that, that you might want to talk about? Yeah, and I think that we can see that concentric ecology embedded in our communities when we talk about the creation stories, right? And I think that in Christian religion, um, there's this notion that Adam and Eve were the first humans created by, you know, the the God. And I think that for indigenous communities, our creation stories kind of revolve around the fact that our deities and our gods created the, you know, our people using the natural resources in our environment. So for instance, in my Zapotec community, it's, it's you know, our creation stories kind of points to the fact that our deities and gods created us from, you know, the jaguars that were in our lands, from the soil, from the plants, and they created us in a cave. So I think that 
the whole notion that as humans, we came from what was on earth and especially in our local environment, it kind of makes it hard for us to separate ourselves from nature because, you know, we are created from that nature. And I think that in Western science and in a lot of religions, right, we're taught that, you know, we were created just out of, you know, not necessarily our environments, but that kind of separates humans from nature, right? It's like, oh, we were sent on earth to kind of oversee or protect the animals as opposed to the animals and plants being a part of us. I blame Plato. I put all <laughs> Plato's fault, <laughs> separating the world into, um, you know, abstract forms, which are the real things. And then this messy reality that we live into, um, kind of separating the head and the heart in that way and creating that, that dichotomy. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really nicely put. Um, I don't want to rush this if there's other bits of this part we want to talk about, but I also thought we could talk about your pathway into science. And um, unless there are more science bits you want to talk about, we didn't talk about um, the the Mayan League. Is there anything about that organization you'd like to let people uh, in on? Yeah, so I'm currently the climate justice policy strategist for the International Mayan League. And one of the things that even as environmental scientists, right, we forget, especially when talking about climate change, we tend to forget to include the reality that climate change is driving a lot of people away from their ancestral lands, right? It's leading to that displacement. And I think with the International Mayan League, what we're trying to highlight is the reality that a lot of people who are being displaced, especially from what is considered Latin America, are indigenous peoples, right? And when we talk about Latin America in the United States, they tend to associate Latin America with the language of Spanish, right? So a lot of that immigration services are provided in Spanish, but a lot of our indigenous communities, especially our Mayan relatives, don't speak Spanish, right? Because that's the language mm -hmm. that we have to learn in our communities. And I think with the International Mayan League, we're bringing awareness of how climate change is actually leading to that forced displacement where they're no longer just immigrants, but actually climate refugees mm -hmm. and asylum seekers. And I think that Seeing it from the United States, uh, I don't know if we have seen how, you know, the Border Patrol has treated even our Haitian relatives, right, with like whips and kind of mm -hmm. following them on horses. It kind of shows how the United States, even though it's a country that's responsible for the climate change impacts that the global South is facing, they don't have that policy or that um, framework to actually allow climate refugees to seek asylum here, right? Because they're mistreated. The immigration policies kind of criminalizes them and they're treated like criminals, even though it's not a crime to seek refuge because of those climate change impacts and how they have led you to seeking, you know, becoming a climate refugee. Yeah, absolutely. It, again, kind of brings me back to that process of drawing borders and, you know, thinking of systems as no this this is the united states and we define it very strictly by this container and we're not going to acknowledge that we're part of a, a global system and a global community of people um it's a kind of uh th there's like a sense of defining a, a self and then doing an us versus them sort of exercise and i don't really know why i kind of intuitively feel like over the last several years, maybe it has something to do with the internet. I don't know. Um, when I say the last several years, maybe the last decade or so, um, I almost feel like there's been 
uh, an intensification of this of the us versus them, an intensification of that like um, you know pitting groups and people against each other. It's kind of very binary thinking, um, and I don't know. We got to put the brakes on that somehow. I don't know how to do it, <laughs> but um, yeah. Why don't we transition into talking about your kind of pathway and tell us a little bit about where you grow up and you talk a lot about your, your dad's experience. Um, feel free to start there if you wanted to bring that into this podcast chat as well. If you wanted to you know, go back a little bit and talk about your, your dad's experience too. Yeah. So my dad is Maya Chorti and in Central America, especially in Guatemala and in Salvador, there was this civil war that was enacted and it was basically against indigenous peoples, peasants, or, you know, the low working class that was like kind of got tired of like political leaders and the upper class kind of taking advantage of them, like, you know, stealing their lands and selling them through land grabs to these large international corporations. So I guess because they wanted to control, you know, the resistance movements, they basically got support from the United States, Canada, to kind of fuel and fund their governmental army, right? And that army, the military, kind of used very violent tactics to kind of scare people off, especially if they were thinking of, like, leading the resistance movements or joining the guerrilla, which is, like, the resistance movement against the government. And in that case, a lot of the tactics they were used was to recruit and forcefully recruit indigenous children. And um, in that case, as a result, indigenous children had the, uh, you know, basically the... I would say like the two, um, and I'm losing my words, <laughs> the two options, mm. right? The only two options to either join the army and like be forcefully taken from your homes to join the army or kind of escape your home and join the guerrilla, which is what, like the resistance um, group. So as a result, because the military will get some children, right? The children will tell them about the other children that were in that specific pueblo or canton, as they call it in El Salvador. So my dad, you know, they will come. He was an, of age to be recruited, so he was 11 years old. So they will come looking for him. And he will always go hide in in the nature, right? Because in, in El Salvador, we have a lot of bunkers, which is just like kind of like just small hills with like a lot of grass that you can hide anywhere. So he will go hide in there and then when they wouldn't find the children because you know they wanted to send a message to the family they were burn homes right and oftentimes they will burn homes with people inside and i think that you know it's violent because that's the training that they receive from the united states to kind of use this violent military tactics to scare the people especially to kind of control the resistance right because they were they were afraid that communism was spread in that country and, and in Guatemala and basically through throughout Central America because that's where they, you know, most of these developed countries fear the spread of communism. So as a result, my dad, once they burned his home, right, fortunately there was nobody inside the home, like his uh, mom and, and younger siblings were not home. Um, when they burned his home, he was like, oh, you know, so I guess this is my last resort in order for me to survive. I have to go look for the guerrilla and join them as a child, you know, to fight in the war. So my dad, um, at 11, he 
re- received training and they call it um, entrenamiento de masa. So it kind of translates to like dough training um, because, you know, they were not um, ready to fight in the war. They were being trained as children to, you know, use the weapons, use the machetes, which was like most of the tools and weapons they had. So I think that as a result of that, eventually my dad was displaced and then met my mom in Oaxaca, Mexico. And then eventually when the United States was like, oh yeah, we did have a responsibility there. Let's give some of, the, of these people asylum right through the Nakara mm-hmm. process. That's when my father came to the United States. So even though as you were mentioning, right, these are borders that were created, but that's a part of my history. And the United Nations has coined the Central American Civil War as a genocide because mm-hmm. indigenous peoples and communities were targeted. And we saw that more in Guatemala because um, Guatemala is larger and we have more indigenous peoples there than in Salvador. It's like a smaller country. You know, they will kill, they will create mass graves where they were killed a lot of indigenous children and just dump them in those mass graves. And I think that that's still history that we're still trying to address, especially as indigenous Mayan people. And, you know, when the whole boarding schools and the locations, you know, the finding of a lot of mass graves, unmarked mass graves of children were found, Guatemala and Salvador wanted to do the same thing. But I think our elders kind of tried to stop it because, you know, it's, for us, it's that history that's still embedded in our parents and our grandparents' generation. And we want to follow more of that cultural protocol to find those graves. And I think that this is like a hard part of my history, but I think it's like the lived experiences that my dad is still healing from, right? Because that's the trauma yeah. that um, you carry as a child. And I mean, he was able Absolutely. to, to you know, escape at 14. So he had three years of that kind of experience in the military and obviously before right because um that was ongoing for years and the government was trying to use these kind of tactics but to kind of suppress that resistance movement right and then they would do massacres of entire villages and communities so it's a lot of history that oftentimes when you look at a history book is watered down because you don't get Mm. that perspective from the person who lived through it but i guess in my book i wanted to kind of highlight some of that part of the history not necessarily so much of the violence that he experienced but you know some uh, to give a summary of his lived experiences during that war that's considered a genocide today by the United Nations. And it's so recent. It's such raw trauma from literally just one generation. And the kind of ramifications are going to be felt for many generations to come because, I mean, we're only really starting to acknowledge this idea of intergenerational trauma, for example, Mm -hmm. with Holocaust survivors and their descendants. And for something that's happened even more recently, um, I can imagine that these these sorts of um, traumatic experiences have real ramifications for people's families and will do for generations to come. And that impacts how you move around in the world, doesn't it? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think oftentimes when we talk about the indigenous genocide, especially in the United States, right, people tell us, oh, that was so long ago. But I'm like, in <sighs> certain communities, it was just like my 
dad's generation. It wasn't that long ago. And they, they used it as a way like, oh, it was so long ago. Like, get over it. Like, stop kind of bringing up indigenous genocide into our, our discourses. But I'm like, you know, like you were oh. mentioning, Nella, it's kind of hard to say, oh, it was long ago when my father's still alive and <laughs> he's yeah. still you know, enduring that trauma or healing from that trauma. It shows you that, yeah. I mean, history, the history books are written by the people in power <laughs> and the yeah, fact that yeah. most people would not recognize or realize that there are such recent examples is probably testament to to that kind of active repression of of the knowledge by uh the u.s government and you know others who are uh, responsible for those sorts of genocides yeah and thinking about even the 1800s violence against native americans okay the the 1800s that may have been a long time ago in terms of a human lifetime, but in terms of the history of that of those civilizations, it's really not that long ago. Um, <laughs> you know, like if you take it as a fraction of the whole length of the civilization, it's very very short. Um, yeah, I, listening to you talk, thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, listening to you talk about that, um, I was just kind of reflecting on how I don't feel like I have any way to to get my mind around that kind of violence and that level of real horror and it's just um and that's a kind of privilege right i just haven't had experiences like that i haven't had that kind of emotional connection and you're totally right when you read a history book even if a history book tries to describe it um, it's so hard to get that sense of like no remember these were, were human beings who were subjected to this and now their families did suffer and their families will continue to have to deal with um the the, out, the outcome of that it's uh, something that needs to be taken really really seriously so 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 your dad ended up in the states and would he did, i'm sorry i'm going to get the details wrong did he end up in seattle or did he end up more was it more california where he ended up yeah he ended up more in california in california. los angeles yeah so it was like um um in south los angeles it was like where most of them were you know kind of like because I guess when in communities when they're displaced, they usually follow where the rest of their communities are. So in mm-hmm. South in Los Angeles, that's where they were. Where, um, you know, he will sleep on park benches during that time until you know a family kind of give him shelter. So I think yeah, it's like the similar, almost a similar story to how many of his generations kind of escaped the civil war and how they ended up in Los Angeles. So that's why we have a big population of indigenous Maya people there from El Salvador and Guatemala in Los Angeles, California. Is that where you were born? Did you grow up? Yes, I was born in Los Angeles. And um, as a result of that, only my dad and my mom are displaced from their families. So um, growing up, you know, going home meant going to go visit your aunts, my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So it would be back in my ancestor land. So while I grew up in the urban setting, we didn't have any relatives here. So we had to go Mm -hmm. back home technically to see them for like the holidays or for birthdays and things like that. All right. Yeah, th- that must have been, I mean, I guess as a kid, that was just the life you you knew, but I'm sure that informed a lot of your perspectives, you know, seeing both the more urban setting in the States and going back to, you know, those, um, th- to see the rest of your family and to see that kind of, all the various contrasts that one might see, just kind of being informed by that and the different approaches to life. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of curious, like, about, when you started getting interested in in science and when you started getting interested in maybe becoming a researcher and you know kind of what your what your pathway into that was like like high school and university and 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think I was always interested in um, seeing what the environmental sciences were because, like, for instance, I always say that my first environmental teacher or professor was my grandmother and my father. And that's because, you know, my father, since his father passed at a young age, right, even like I think at seven, he had to take care of his entire family because his siblings were babies, his mom was single. So he mm. became a fisherman. And I think that as an indigenous child, he was kind of trained by elders to how to fish, how to look at the world, especially how to make observations so that you can catch fish. And I think that he will always share those stories because I think those were like um, kind of like the nicer stories that he would share with me as a child, mm. as opposed to, you know, you know, the war stories that mm-hmm. he started sharing more as I was an adult, not necessarily as a child. He would share those stories. And I think that I always felt connected to his stories through that lens, through the environmental lens. And my grandmother will always, um, as an elder, you know, she loved sharing stories about the environment. And I was growing up you know, around her. So that also, like, that always fueled my passion to be like, oh, what is environmental sciences? We get to learn more about our environments. So as a result, when I went to undergraduate, I was interested in the marine sciences. And I think that ties the fishing that my father would do in my community still does. And I ended up, you know, studying marine science and then basically worked on the BP oil spill that happened in the Gulf of Mexico after I graduated in in the from off Louisiana. So mm-hmm. I was more kind of focused on the Western sciences, right? Like how how did this impact the ecosystems as opposed to the people? And it was when I was doing the the work for the BP oil spill that I came across the United Huma Nation, the indigenous communities. And my father would go down and then he started like talking to people and visiting the United Huma Nation. And I started becoming more aware that um, when the BP oil spill happened, they're shrimping because, you know, they rely on shrimping. They couldn't um, shrimp for a long time. And as a result, their livelihoods were jeopardized. And while large, you know, what other fishermen, like non-Indigenous fishermen, received compensation from the BP oil spill, none of the tribal fishermen received any form of compensation for the BP oil spill that now kind of, you know, prevented them from being able to shrimp, right? Because the oil on the shrimp is kind of, the shellfish is kind of hard to get rid of, right? Because it's kind of the way that it impacts shrimp as opposed to other fish is kind of like worse. So in that case, and then just being and just being more aware and observing how my communities were being also impacted by that environmental injustices or impacts, I decided to kind of transition from that technical sciences into more of that, you know, sciences to uplift my communities. And I think that that's why for my graduate degree, I kind of, our graduate studies, I kind of integrated more of the indigenous communities, my indigenous communities, as opposed to kind of just doing like the Western science where, you know, you take us a while water sample, you kind of analyze it in the lab and then see the, you know, concentrations of oil or other toxins that it has, as opposed to looking at the communities that are also impacted by those toxins, or in this case, Hmm. an oil spill that um, the BP was responsible for. Yeah. Was that for your PhD work? You were shifting over to that kind of community-based, you know? 
Yeah, because I was like, oh, if I'm going to return to the environmental sciences, I want to do something that's interdisciplinary that actually uplifts my communities. Because, you know, as one of the things that my dad always told me is that if you're able to pursue higher education or higher academia, you kind of have more responsibility to your community because, you know, you're offered certain privileges when you get your graduate studies as opposed to, you know, just your bachelor's. And I think that I always held that responsibility that my dad always taught me that I had for my communities, especially having more privilege than them in the sense that, you know, I was relocated or displaced to the United States. I always held that to my heart. And I was like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. if I do pursue graduate school, I want to do something that kind of um, enacts or uplifts that responsibility I hold. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your project, about what you did for the PhD and our audience? We got lots of nerds in our audience. Um, so, and I'm including myself in that. So yeah, feel free. A little bit of detail is fine. You know, uh, nerdy detail would be, would be totally fine. <laughs> so for my PhD, um, I basically supported and kind of co-constructed it with the community to restore those 20 acres of land that are located in the urban park known as Discovery Park. And that's the largest urban park in the state of Washington. So during, I forget the years, but it used to be a military base. And I think all 364 acres used to be a military base. However, when the military relocated, they decided to donate or gift those acres back to the city of Seattle. So as a result, um, I think it was like one or two generations ago, the urban indigenous communities decided to lead a peaceful resistance movement to get some of that land back. And mm-hmm. I think that the reason why they were given 20 acres of land is because they also kind of attracted a lot of celebrities during those times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once the media kind of gets involved, it's kind of like, oh, they kind of puts in a, I guess it kind of pu- pushes the government into like a a corner, right? Where they're like, oh yeah, I guess we have to kind of do something so we don't look bad because I think mm. image is very important to them. So they decided the to lease, yes, <laughs> they decided to lease 20 acres of land to the urban indigenous communities. And as a result, they created a nonprofit and they built Daybreak Start Indian Cultural Center, which is like the Um, hub for many urban indigenous peoples to go look at native art, to kind of go and hold ceremonies there, events. Um, They hold the annual powwow there every year, except during the pandemic. So one of the things about Seattle parks is that they were maintaining the rest of the parks from, you know, they were removing the invasive species. They kept it well kept because the other parts of the parks were used by, um, part you know by tourism right because a lot of people go to discovery park just for tourism or there was trails that people use but as soon as you will hit the jurisdiction those 20 acres that were leased to the urban indigenous communities it was like you can tell that it had been unkept for so many years and as a result the community was like oh you know we would like to restore some of this land because you can see in other parts of the park it kind of looks like out of place because you know the invasive species in that case, we have wild blackberry was growing, like, well, I'm also short, so it was growing definitely taller than me, so taller than five feet. Um, and, you know, I did that through, for my PhD, where we restore the land, but not necessarily from that Western restoration lens. But what I did is I kind of integrated in the indigenous culture, right? And 
for instance, one of the examples that elders kept reminding us, especially, you know, the young, the youth, is that invasive species, while, you know, Western conservation treats them as pests or unwanted, you know, weeds or species, that we still have to ask them for permission before removing them because while there might not be our direct relatives to indigenous peoples of the Americas, there's someone's relatives and their displaced relatives that also need that caretaking and that, you know, compassion and reciprocity that, you know, kind of relationship that we should hold with them. And, you know, that was something that in Western conservation and especially in parks, right, you just when you're doing volunteer work, they just tell you, oh, get rid of the invasive species, just kind of tear it up and things like that. But they forget to kind of tell you to build that relationship with those species because, you know, they're someone's relatives. They're displaced, especially from Europe, Asia, you know, during colonization, they were displaced. So you still have to treat them with respect and also honor their presence, even though they're invasive species. And I think that was, you know, something that in a way it was beautiful to integrate the community because in other, you know, we I had just worked with Seattle Parks, they would have just told us, oh, get rid of them as soon as you can, like remove them without building that relationship. And I think that that's one of the also the one of the critiques I have about Western conservation or restoration is that we tend to treat invasive species as like pests or weeds, when in reality they're displaced relatives and we should still hold that relationship with them as well. That's really, really interesting. So for your PhD, you helped restore this park. You helped restore it and you did it by way of kind of integrating both Western and uh, and, and indigenous knowledge. Uh, meanwhile, for my PhD, I played around with some equations. <laughs> so that's really cool that like you had a... <laughs> yeah, it's nice to hear that some, someone's done something directly practically useful. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really cool. And I was also struck by, you know, you mentioned that this uh, park turned into a home for... Um, for uh, urban indigenous folks as well, or like a cultural center. And I remember you quoted the, the statistic in your book that according to the U.S. Census Bureau, over 70% of indigenous people live in urban settings. I had no idea that was uh, that was a big eye-opener for me. I mean, it makes sense the way you outline it. You say, well, people you know, went where the jobs were because their traditional ways of living were destroyed or severely compromised. So yeah, people had to go go where the jobs are. So that puts the work that you did in context, I think, of, yeah, this this is needed. Like, this is a culturally needed thing. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's really cool that you were able to have, to contribute to this you know, very practical, on-the-ground sort of uh, improvement. So I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around bits of it. And thanks for being patient with my attempt to like wrap my head around it. I appreciate um, the chance to, to learn more from you about it. So when we talk about respecting a, a species that might be considered invasive or you know, kind of respecting it, it sounds like part of that's a, a kind of, and I, I mean this in a good way. I don't mean this in, a, in any derisive way whatsoever. It sounds like there's almost like kind of a heart opening process there of like, well, op- open your heart up to, in the way that this ecosystem currently functions as opposed to coming in with a, a hyper analytical approach of like, right, cut this up, kill this, let this spread. Don't let this other thing spread. And 
it's that contrast is really interesting. And I think I'm still trying to wrap my head around what does it practically kind of look like, or am I thinking about it wrong to kind of say, you know, open your heart up to the fact that this is a displaced relative. I can see how it changes your thinking for sure. I think if, if you can give me, if there's anything concrete uh, or a little more specific, it would help me understand, but I totally understand if I'm just not thinking about it right. I'm also I'm also prepared to be told I'm just not thinking about it right. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> no, no worries. And I think um, one of the interesting kind of examples that I have is because like I taught a class in the Department of American Indian Studies where students also had to do some of that field work and help restore some of that land for certain hours. So I remember having some indigenous students and one of them told me, oh, this is like a longer process than when we were doing the same thing, like removing invasive species in part of the university. I forget the location of the university. And for her, it was kind of like eye opening because, you know, she was like, oh, I kind of forgot to bring in that cultural value or I didn't want to mention it because, you know, the professor had told us this is how you remove Hmm. invasive species. This is like the steps that you take. This is the methods or the tools that you use. And for her, you know, she as indigenous peoples, we're always told to respect plants, right? And animals, because regardless, they're still our relatives. And for her, you know, she didn't want to speak up in class because, you know, oftentimes in in many Western science classes, if you speak up as an indigenous person, you're either ridiculed or made fun of like, oh, you know, that's probably like a cultural taboo or whatever mm-hmm. that they're mentioning. So for her, it was like also a healing process because she had been, you know, she was um, in the environmental sciences. She had been removing invasive species through the Western lens, right, where you just like tear them up. And through the indigenous lens, we were always reminded to pray to the plant, to give it some medicine. So in this case, we will use cedar um, flakes to kind of give it that medicine because cedar is native to Washington, Western Red Cedar, and mm-hmm. also sing to it whatever our, our cultural protocol was for our communities, our tribes, to kind of remove plants. And I think that that was beautiful, but it also kind of like, as she mentioned, it made it a longer process, right? Because in Western sciences, you're like, oh, if you're going to restore this piece of land, just tear it up and like take all the invasives out, put it here in this pile and then keep it pushing. But in this case, you know, we had to follow protocol. And with the Western wild blackberry, they have thorns, right? So even students were noticing how once they were building those relationships, the thorns were not kind of like um, poking them as much as, you know, when you just remove them without talking to the planner, asking for permission. And I think that in the way that might seem surreal, especially from a Western lens, but it was actually happening where students were building those relationships with those plants or people were, and they weren't getting poked as much with those um, stinging um thorns that you know actually stung Mm. once you had so many cuts (laughs) and scrapes on your arm and legs and stuff yeah yeah yeah. and and even if i mean and again you can tell me if i'm thinking about it wrong for sure but like even if one did want to apply a let's say like rather materialist sort of lens in this case you could still kind of see how being respectful and being having that mindset could help you like um, well, you're probably just moving a little more carefully as part of it. You're probably just like, you just, you have less of that mindset of like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tear this out. And I'm going to like, it, it changes like the way your, your body positions itself and moves itself 
with relation to the environment that you find yourself in. So that I wonder if part of the, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to reduce it to anything, but I just wonder if part of the value in the prayers and the ceremonies is exactly what you're talking about. Like you're connecting yourself, you're grounding yourself with the the thing that you're a part of, the system that you're a part of, and you'll be more likely to be able to kind of flow with it um, as opposed to being in conflict with it. Um, yeah. I don't know. Is that a fair description? This is my attempt yeah, to I think, wrap my head around it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a perfect description, right? Cause I think that in the Western sciences, we're just taught to kind of be like this hamster in a wheel where we're just like going, going, going. And we never stop to, as you were mentioning, build those relationships that can result in us kind of positioning ourselves where we're not stung or, you know, cut as deep as if we were in that constant, um, fast pace, like to get this done so that we can go back and collect data or collect the data and analyze this in our labs. So hmm. I think hmm. that's a great way to also describe it. Okay. Yeah. So I think I also kind of wanted to bring in this element, which you're, you're bringing in as well. We talked to Anna Palmer, who made a documentary where she, she went to several indigenous communities and learned from them. And I can't remember the the community off the top of my head, but one of them I did quite a lot of controlled burning and, you know, of, of, as part of their forest management practice. And I kind of wanted to bring that element in there too, is because the approach you're talking about, it's not that you don't do things, you do stuff. You're just change. You're changing the way you think about it. You're changing your relationship between you and the, the land you're, you're managing, but you know, you could still that the right decision or the decision that's consistent with that, indigenous knowledge could still be like, yeah, we need to set some fires and we need to, you know, burn this part of the forest and this part of the forest to keep it healthy. So I think that's just something I remember kind of learning from that documentary is like, well, it's not, the answer is not do nothing. The answer is not like just step back and let let nature do whatever it's doing. You're still a part of it and you're still managing it. Um, It's just a, it's a a shift in mindset. It's a shift in tradition and it, I think it ultimately, I mean, and you can obviously speak to this way, way more than I can, but it, I feel like it will make you more likely to think a few generations down the line if you have that kind of relationship with the the land that you're in and managing. Yeah, and that's a great way to, yeah, summarize it and also connect it, right? Because you're not just thinking of like managing that land for just your generation, but actually managing the land so that, you know, years to come, it's actually managed. It's like in this case, as you were mentioning, it prevents wildfires that tend to happen a lot in California, Washington, and the entire West Coast. Yeah, yeah. So that, well, good. Thanks for helping me wrap my head around it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So I was curious about, um, your shift into writing a book, like what your motivation for that was. That was one of the things that struck me. I don't, I don't know about your specific uh, discipline and subdiscipline, but for me and Ella, like somebody, um, you know, like pretty early on in their career, writing a whole book, that's pretty unusual. I'm not anywhere, I'm not really aware of anybody who's who's done that other than the dissertation, the dissertations and thesis, that's kind of a book, right? It is a book. It's just a super specialized book usually that maybe four other people might be interested in. Possibly. Um, so, so yeah, I, what was the kind of origin of, of the book of um, where did it come from? When did you start writing it? When did you start to kind of feel like I could do this? I could write this book. so yeah so I think it is my first book so I didn't expect to write a whole book but I think that once I was 
um, finishing my dissertation, something that I noticed a lot was that when there was discussions or articles or books discussing indigeneity of the Americas, it tended to focus more on the United States and Canada. So as somebody who's been displaced from, you know, an indigenous person who has been displaced from, you know, not those areas in particular, I kind of felt you know, kind of made invisible in the indigeneity discourses. And it, the books that I will find that did kind of talk about indigenous communities from south of the border, from Latin America, have not been written by indigenous peoples. And I think the only book that I can remember or recall is the um, from Enrique Solomon, that that indigenous person, I think he's from Mexico, who wrote about concentric ecology. He kind of coined that term in mm, the environmental yeah. sciences. And I think I was like, oh, okay, you know, I get to choose from one book. Um, so as a result, I wanted to write stories, especially given that, you know, my father is getting older. My, you know, my grandparents have all passed on. And also, you know, my generation is also, you know, growing, you know, getting into that adult phase, right, where we're going to soon become elders sometime. And I think that I wanted to, in a way, <laughs> in a way, kind of write a book that kind of hinted or kind of addressed that invisibility that I was feeling in many indigeneity discourses or books of the Americas that tend to focus in the United States and Canada. And that has to do also with the reality that, you know, in literature, you have to write in English most of the time so that the book has a market. And I think that mm. it goes back to the responsibility and privilege that I have, right, to be able to speak English and write English where I could write a book. And I think it took two years and it was also a healing process. So it was like, you know, getting the stories from my dad, especially. And I think I talk about it like he will tell me snippets, even as an adult of his stories and his experiences as a child soldier. But he will never he never never recounted his story from like start to finish right to the present time and I think it was a healing process for all of us I also was able to integrate testimonies from not just relatives but other indigenous peoples I'm in community with and I think that being able to write a non-academic book allowed me to not necessarily summarize what they would tell me but also kind of throw those testimonies in there in quotation marks and I think the publishing company did a good job in like kind of separating the quote the testimonies from the text and I think that you know that's basically what inspired me to write a book and I also love writing um so I was like oh hmm. I can write a book instead of like all these articles <laughs> <laughs> Did you specifically set out to make it non-academic? Yes, I think my attempt was to make it non-academic, but obviously, you know, sometimes we have to use those terms. So I try to describe them or summarize them or define them. And yes, because I think that um, I want this to be a book that, you know, uh, my relatives who provided testimonies can read, right? And it's not saying that they're dumb or anything, but it's like, you know, if you use a lot of um, Western terminology or academic terminology, they might not be like, what is she talking about? It's going to sure, be Sure, you haven't had the years of training and familiarity yeah. <laughs> with those words that, yeah, it's, you know, the layperson uh, hasn't got their ears around yet. It makes so much more sense if you're able to say it in language that everyone can understand and it's so much more accessible and increases the kind of the reach of your work, which, yeah, I think that really comes across in, in the bits that I've read as well, that, that storytelling is mm. very compelling because you know, especially with academic texts, you get very dry, very dense pages 
and it's not fun to read, even if you're really interested in the subject. But those <laughs> those personal stories are, are really what gets people hooked because ultimately we're all people and we care about other people and their experiences and the things that have happened to them. And that's how you get people to care about things, isn't it? You you tell them a story mm. about what happened to you or someone you know. Yeah. And it feels like an integrative exercise too. You're integrating your science training and um, interest with your history and with your past. So it has a kind of, has that kind of narrative where you're bringing all those elements together into something cohesive, which I think is really cool and, and inspiring. And yeah, yeah it would be, I'd like more people to do it, to put it <laughs> into context. And honestly, like this part of what I like about doing this podcast is we get to do a bit of that here. Um, mm -hmm. We get to say, let's talk about science. Okay. Let's talk about, you know, you as a person and uh, what, what is your life like and what is your work like and what does it look like to be, you know, you as the scientist and you as the person, um, which I think is, is really lovely for us to remember that, uh, yeah, science is done by, by people. I like to say that science is done because people get up in the morning and they, they go to work, they do it, <laughs> they do the thing. And if people didn't do the thing, you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't have science. Do you think you'll write more? You said you loved writing. So um, I wonder, you've got some plans <laughs> or some intention there probably, I would guess. <laughs> yeah, I would like to write more books, but I think that um, it's a learning experience, right? Because even like publicizing it or like <laughs> the marketing side is like takes up a lot of energy more mm. than sometimes the writing and the proofreading does, oh, wow. especially, you know, somebody. Yeah. So I think that um, it's beautiful, though, because, you know, I get to write the book and it wasn't I wasn't forced to tailor it a certain way that I think that, you know, some presses or publishers tend to be more strict on like, oh, maybe you're being too, you're criticizing too much, like tone it down a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. they, were, they gave me the the freedom to do that. And I think that, you know, I really enjoyed publishing with this publishing company um, that didn't give me constraints, right? To be like, oh, you know, you had to say it a certain way so that, you know, you appease <laughs> a certain audience, but then that kind of waters down our histories as well, or our stories or experiences. Yeah. I did. I did not get the feeling that you were pulling any punches. I did not get the feeling that you were, <laughs> that you were holding back. I'm like, it's all there. It's all right there. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you had a positive experience with them, and that you uh, would be would be open to doing that again. And yeah, so we we kind of like to. We don't have to wrap up. Um, I kind of like to ask this set of questions where I ask like, what have you, what have you learned about X? What have you learned about Y? And we've covered some of this, but sometimes in the process of asking these questions, new kind of things can come up or, you know, you might, we might summarize some of the stuff we talked about, or you might think of a new thing. Um, so for example, I could ask you, what's something that you learned about science? You know, something that you didn't know before you got involved with, with any of it, something that surprised you or um, that you had to adapt to. What does that make? What does that make you think of? Yeah, I think something that I learned about sciences, and I think it goes back to the training that we get. Right, is that oftentimes we see indigenous knowledge or indigenous science as something separate, but in reality, it can both be integrated together. Right, to work stronger, to work more holistically, and I think that we're seeing in you know in my generation this push for indigenous science to be included. And I think in the United States, we're seeing how at least is 
I wouldn't say infiltrating, but like kind of reaching the government <laughs> officials, right? Because I think the White House released a statement, and I think it's four days um, ago, that they're going to start um, integrating or uplifting traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous knowledge in their environmental policy. And I think that, you know, hopefully it does, it's not just lip service, it actually leads to action, but at least it's like a, a step that, you know, they're taking to actually say, oh, you, we do know that there is traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous knowledge. And as a result of this, as this federal government, we're going to start including it. And they released that memo. And I think that that's something that, you know, I always go back to giving credit to the previous generations. Those were the generations that peel that layer so that my generation can be more vocal or have a platform to actually say indigenous science is a way of science and it can be blended with Western science. And I think that growing up, I never thought that was a possibility, but I think that's something that I learned about science, right? That we can integrate both and that it doesn't invalidate one or the other. It can actually work in unison and actually make it stronger in both cases. And yeah, oh, that's interesting. Nice. To, um, how about what's something you've learned about navigating the academic world? Yeah, so navigating the academic world can sometimes be like navigating like a family gathering or like a mm. meeting because, you know, you do have a lot of personalities. And at the end of the day, you know, hopefully everyone has the same common goal. And I think with academia, there are so many systems that we have to navigate, especially, you know, as young professionals, right, as we're moving up the ladder or we're moving up in our careers. And I think that that's just always a learning journey right that you learn about academia that you know as a student you're like oh you don't really see what a, your professors are going through mm-hmm. or your graduate students are you know assistants are going through but as you move into those spaces you're like oh I had no idea that being a graduate student meant I had to do all of this or being a professor I had to navigate all of these like hierarchies to even get something approved or across and I think that's something mm-hmm. that I have learned in academia yeah just that kind of expanding circle of awareness of <laughs> yeah everybody's just doing the best they can you know within the <laughs> systems that they're embedded in how, how about writing what's something you learned about writing I learned that writing is actually healing for me because oftentimes, mm. you know, in school we have to write to for homework be- and we write because we have to, not necessarily because we love to, right? And I think mm. that um, having that relationship with writing where it was always done to write um to, you know, complete homework. Or as Ella was mentioning, when we write for publications, we had to make it very dry to the point that sometimes when I'm writing an article, I'm boring myself. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> and I kind of, I drag it along. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to get this done soon. So I think that writing can also be healing and it can also be fun, especially if we move outside of those you know, those systems where, you know, we have to have the introduction, where we have to have the abstract and conclusion and not necessarily put ourselves into the stories. And I think that that's part of the indigenous way of life, right? That even as scientists, we bring our entire selves to our fields, but in science, right, we're always told separate your stories, separate yourselves, be more objective rather than subjective. And I think that writing this book kind of allowed me to be like, oh, there's other types of writing that I enjoy more than, you know, peer review <laughs> publications or writing articles. 
you're making me want to give it a try i don't know (laughs) yeah you should all give it a try it doesn't hurt right even if four people buy your book you know at least it's four people you reach yeah that's right (laughs) um and you do some teaching right you mentioned you have some some students you mentioned a bit of teaching what's something you've learned about that about uh teaching yeah so this year i'm able to you know i've been given the privilege and opportunity to teach climate science and i think that oftentimes even as scientists when we you know advance ourselves we tend to kind of be put ourselves in our soapboxes right where we're like um, when we're asked, like, for instance, what is the greenhouse effect? Then you're like, I don't really know how to tell you what the greenhouse effect is. But I think being able to teach climate science has kind of allowed me to revisit those concepts. And I think that's mm-hmm. important, right, to not just know how to speak to our peers or colleagues, but also teach it so that, you know, if we you know, go into the policy sector. Once we teach students, we're planting those seeds that can, you know, hopefully um, thinking in the future generations, right, bring up this this generation in a different way that kind of truly, you know, tackles climate change, you know, through another layer that our generation is currently peening. Yeah, hopefully so. I'm kind of aware of the, the, sometimes there's a sense of, I'm not saying that you're doing this, you're not doing this, but, you know, it one doesn't want to just go, okay, next generations figure it out. Like, <laughs> but um, a lot of the burden is falling on, on them um, because it's not being dealt with um, in a very effective manner right now. But I, I really liked what you said about, you know, through teaching you, you revisit those basic concepts and you kind of get regrounded in them and it forces you to explain them in a, in a flexible way, in a, in an agile way. So you have to, um, yeah, just think about that from a communication standpoint. Yeah, teaching uh, something gives you means you really understand it. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> if something is explained badly, it's because the explainer doesn't know their stuff properly themselves. So, yeah, I always think it's the same. When when I'm doing boxing coaching, when you go back to basics, mm. it's one of the most helpful things. Like, this is how you throw a really simple, straight punch. And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's good to remember that. <laughs> the foundational stuff that, that kind of underlies all the complex stuff that you end up spending all your time doing. Uh, hearing you say that now, of course, that's true. I just never considered the fact that, like, oh, I forgot how to punch people. <laughs> of course, I that was a very specific, non, non, non-relevant example. <laughs> you never know. I wouldn't advise punching people in academia. <laughs> don't, mi- don't mix the two pastimes. <laughs> uh, no, was it? I think it was. It must have been me and you, Ella on so, so ella was a guest on the podcast like the second episode i think and we talked about kind of chess boxing or like where you oh, play yeah. a game of chess and then you you do a, a round of boxing and you kind of like bounce back and forth between those two those two worlds of like using <laughs> your your um i mean you use your mind in both but you know one is a bit more in your head and the other is head and body um <laughs> to say yeah <laughs> And that's an integrating, speaking of integrating activities, you have to use your whole <laughs> self for that one. Yeah, boxing. <laughs> chest, chest boxing, yeah. Um, do you have any questions, Ella, that you wanted to ask Jessica? Anything? No, I think um, you've, you've done the, the, the good learning ones. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's great to hear your perspective on all this. Yeah, I've really enjoyed hearing it. 
Yeah, me too. Me too. I've really enjoyed uh, learning from you and learning from your perspective. And thanks for helping me get my head around um, a bit more of what you're talking about. I feel a bit more better informed and better uh, grounded in, in that now. I'll just say, uh, yeah, I'll just ask you, is there anything else you want to talk about and how you how you feeling? No, I think that's all. I just wanted to thank you both for, you know, having me and giving me this space to speak more on the book and also my experiences as a scientist, right? Because as you were both mentioning, oftentimes we don't tend to speak about our experiences. We tend to focus more on the, you know, the abstract, the linear way, right? To get those mm -hmm. publications or those presentations out. So yeah, thank you for inviting me and giving me this experience as well okay great thanks jessica okay, and thanks thank ella you. thanks for thank you talk to you later have a good weekend Cheers. bye nice meeting you okay bye there you have it our conversation with dr jessica hernandez yeah thanks again to jessica for stopping by okay some credits thanks very much to sean williams page for all of her excellent editing efforts and helping us organize the show She's helping us schedule. She's helping us do the transcripts, loads of stuff. So thank you so much to, to Sean Williams-Page for that. Thanks to Lillian Blair for audio engineering. She has some lovely software that she runs this through, and she has given us lots of tips on home recording and how to tune everything up nicely, how to use all the compressor settings appropriately. Thanks to all of you for listening and for sending in your guest suggestions and thanks for rating and reviewing all of that good, lovely stuff. You can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. I'm at DanJonesOcean, and Ella is Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a Z or a Z. Okay, in the few seconds remaining, I'll just share something kind of mundane and inconsequential with you. Today, I uh, was mostly eating healthy, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, I ended up eating a bowl of churros cereal it's like cinnamon churros weird weird decision tasty but i don't know what happened <laughs> take care of yourself talk to you later bye